Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is April 30th, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a pleasure to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading of the first part of Plato's Symposium, the first of three that we're going to do, covering to 189a, and these are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on these or any of the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts in today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So the subject of the symposium is love, and the dialogue begins with speeches on love by four hungover Athenians attending a drinking party, which is called a symposium, the day after a night of heavy drinking. The first speech is by Phaedrus, who is followed by Pausanias, then Eryximachus, and finally Aristophanes, before Socrates takes the floor. We will hear parts of the first three speeches today, and in our next two sessions, as we complete the symposium, we will hear first from Aristophanes, then Socrates, and at the end, the love-smitten Alcibiades. I'll start out a bit differently today. Where I would normally provide an outline of the themes in the introduction, my responsibilities at work didn't allow me the time to prepare one. Instead, I'll read from the opening of the dialogue, which may help to place us in the symposium alongside the characters present to understand the context in which they are speaking. I do want to take a minute, though, here at the outset to say two things about the Plato's Pod podcast. Firstly, we recorded a great discussion two weeks ago on the dialogue, The Hippias Minor, which normally I would have posted now for listeners to enjoy, but alas, time has not been on my side. I will post that episode in the coming week, and in the following week, this episode will be live. And secondly, I want to say how thrilled I am that the podcast has had over 11,000 downloads now into its third season. When I started the podcast with thanks to Eva's inspiration, I never thought that a group discussion on Plato's works would attract this many listeners. I'm so grateful to those who have participated in our discussions and to our listeners. I'd love to hear from interested listeners and invite you to drop me a line by email to dialoguesonplato@outlook.com. Let me know what you like, or if you have any suggestions, whether you have any questions, or what you hope to hear us discuss in future episodes. I truly look forward to your thoughts. And now, without further ado, I'll start us off today by reading the opening of the symposium from 172b to 173e, in which Apollodorus begins to tell Glaucon about the symposium that took place many years earlier. And so it starts off, Apollodorus, I've been looking for you, he said. You know there was once a gathering at Agathon's when Socrates, Alcibiades, and their friends had dinner together? I wanted to ask you about the speeches they made on love. What were they? I heard a version from a man who had it from Phoenix, Philip's son, but it was badly garbled, and he said you were the one to ask. So please, will you tell me all about it? After all, Socrates is your friend. Who has a better right than you to report his conversation? But you begin, Yadi. Tell me this. Were you there yourself? Your friend must have really garbled his story, I replied, if you think this affair was so recent that I could have been there. I did think that, he said. Glaucon, how could you? 
You know very well, Agathon hasn't lived in Athens for many years. Well, it's been less than three that I've been Socrates' companion and made it my job to know exactly what he says and does each day. Before that, I simply drifted aimlessly. Of course, I used to think that what I was doing was important, but in fact, I was the most worthless man on earth. As bad as you are at this very moment, I used to think philosophy was the last thing a man should do. Oh, stop joking, Apollodorus, he, he replied. Just tell me when the party took place. When we were still children, when Agathon won the prize for his first tragedy, it was the day after he and his troop held their victory celebration. So it really was a long time ago, he said. And who told you about it? Was it Socrates himself? Oh, for God's sake, of course not, I replied. It was the very same man who told Phoenix, a fellow called Aristodemus from Sidanthinum, a real runt of a man who always went barefoot. He went to the party because I think he was obsessed with Socrates, one of the worst cases at the time. Naturally, I checked part of his story with Socrates, and Socrates agreed with his account. Please tell me then, he said. You speak and I'll listen as we walk to the city. This is the perfect opportunity. So this is what we talked about in our way, and that's why, as I said before, I'm not unprepared. Well, if I'm to tell you about it too, I'll be glad to. After all, my greatest pleasure comes from philosophical conversation. Even if I'm only a listener, whether or not I think it will be to my advantage. All other talk, especially the talk of rich businessmen like you, bores me to tears. And I'm sorry for you and your friends because you think your affairs are important when really they're totally trivial. Perhaps in your turn, you'll think I'm a failure. And believe me, I think that what you think is true. But as for all of you, I don't just think you are failures. I know it for a fact. <laughs> you'll never change, Apollodorus, always nagging, even at yourself. I do believe you think everybody, yourself first of all, is totally worthless, except, of course, Socrates. I don't know exactly how you came to be called the maniac, but you certainly talk like one, always furious with everyone, including yourself, but not with Socrates. Apollodorus says, of course, my dear friend, it's perfectly obvious why I have these views about us all. It's simply because I'm a maniac and I'm raving. So that's the opening part of the dialogue. It's, it's quite an interesting opening part. I, I haven't really seen this in any of Plato's other dialogues. You know, there's this back and forth. Polydorus admits that he's a maniac. He's raving. He pokes fun at the others, insulting them. They, they insult him. He insults himself. And I just wonder, you know, what you thought about this opening. And it, it's kind of leading us into this interesting symposium, this drinking party where everybody's really hungover. Nobody really has much energy. They really had it out the previous night and, uh, you know, they're going to be talking maybe philosophy, maybe, maybe nonsense because of their physical condition, but they're going to decide to make speeches on love. So Plato was a dramatist before he became a, a philosopher and, and a geometer. And so there's a lot of drama actually happening in this. And I just thought it would, would be helpful to read this, to take us back into that time 2,400 years ago when they're at this party and we'll, we'll hear, you know, they're, they're sitting on these couches and trading these uh, stories and theories back and forth. It's kind of a nice intimate gathering of a bunch of hungover people. So we'll see what they say. So any thoughts about the opening part here? Yes, Ernest, your thoughts. Yes, I find it very interesting that Plato, instead of uh, making uh, it directly from somebody who was present at the party, makes it that somebody told him, uh, another person who 
also tells the story from another person. So it's not like somebody who was present at the party. It's like actual uh, presenter wasn't there. He heard it from somewhere. And it makes it uh, kind of not uh, really true story. It's yeah. like a fi- makes it uh, more of, uh, of a fictional story. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, Plato does this sometimes where he has third party accounts of things that happened. And I guess we're left to wonder how much of this was actually real, at least in the dialogue. You know, the, the symposium wasn't necessarily, did never really happen necessarily, but how much of this discussion was correctly remembered and how much was not correctly remembered. And memory is a big theme that plays through Plato. Um, and he, they use references to memory a number of times here. And I think maybe he's trying to tell us something about memory. We learned the difference in, the, um, in, a, in another dialogue about the difference between memory and recollection. And Socrates said in the Mino that all knowledge is recollection. Recollection is what the soul does when it's not connected with the body, when it's not experiencing something at the same time that the body is experiencing, it's something that happens in the soul later. And memory is what happens when the soul experiences something at the same time as the body. So there's definitely a recollection going on here. And recollections, as we all know, uh, aren't necessarily always correct and accurate and complete. So they do make reference to that here at the beginning. So maybe this is part of the the question of love is that maybe maybe they don't properly report everything that was said and we have to make some sense out of it so so thanks for that that's a that's a great observation to start with um, we'll go to eva and then eric thank you yeah i think in a storytelling perspective this is a great way to start a conversation or a dialogue about something that is super invisible and it's hard to talk about love there is cost and sometimes you might be losing stuff morals like Plato talks about morals or values they are invisible too but I think he is trying to make a stage of like you will have to really get out of your daily habits maybe because this will be different because that's the Thing, let's say about healing or uh, believing things with love it's it's a game changer so he is making up I mean they are all making up a almost impossible scene to make us believe because uh, as you said James like the second section like there are some stuff that it's impossible it's impossible to believe in a way but we all know that we want to believe in that stuff too. Uh, so I think we are all getting ready to play around love. And this is a good way to start talking about it, I guess. Yeah, I love that. The, you know, taking yourself out of the daily habits and out of the daily existence and putting yourself into this kind of not otherworldly scene, but, you know, really detached scene, something that's really different from anything maybe that any of us has experienced. So it, it's kind of this unique, unique setting where we can just let our minds go and focus on the question of love only and nothing else. So I think that's great. So thank you for that. And uh, Eric, and then Ernest, and then Darren. Eric. 
Hi, yes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. I just want to talk a little bit more, James. You mentioned memories and rec uh, recollection. And reading this, it kind of reminded me of a biography of the Buddha that I've read. The author mentioned you want to put yourself in that situation. You're in that moment hearing the Buddha speak and uh, reading it, it, it was kind of a similar feeling. You're almost invited. You almost feel like you're the one who haphazardly met Socrates and going to the symposium. So it's a very interesting take on the uh, recollection, uh, recollection you mentioned. Well, thank you. And, and yeah, definitely, I, I find putting myself in the situation uh, really helps to understand the context of the dialogue. And this is why I like Plato's approach to dialogue so so much is that we can really put ourselves in that situation and and really not you know empathize with the characters or at least try to understand what where the characters are coming from their different perspectives. Uh, I think it's much more rich reading it that way and experiencing that way than just somebody's accounts of their own ideas. So that that's why I really like Plato's approach so much. And this opening to this dialogue is just exceptionally. Uh, rich in that kind of drama, you know, where I think we could, it, it really does draw me in as I read it, uh, especially this one. So, uh, yeah, so thanks for that. Yeah, definitely that idea of putting yourself in the Buddha situation or putting yourself in the situation of this symposium. I think that's uh, very helpful to understand the context. So thank you for that in earnest. And then Darren. Uh, yes, uh, another interesting uh, situation that also puzzles me because it was intention uh, of Plato to show the speeches. But before he does that, he tells us another interesting story about how Agathas came to see Socrates and that he wasn't invited to the party and that eventually they go to, he goes, enters the room and Socrates is waiting outside until half dinner is finished, until he appears. Like, uh, Plato didn't uh, need to put it in, but there's a reason that he specified that uh, story. And I, I cannot comprehend it, like why he added that portion also, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Indeed, it is interesting. And thanks for raising that. So there's this part at the beginning, it's not in the readings that I've selected for today, but it's the part where Socrates arrives at the, at the party. And instead of going right in, he stands outside on a neighbor's porch and he just kind of stares transfixed into space. And people at the symposium said, well, what's wrong with Socrates? Why is he doing that? And they said, well, just leave him be. He's, he's like that sometimes. And then he does this other thing at the end, which is kind of similar. You know, there's this Plato's saying something about Socrates, that he has this bit of an unusual approach to things or this unusual way of thinking that just kind of takes him out of this world. And he's off in some other world. And I, I do wonder what Plato is trying to say with that. So maybe let's see what we can make of that both in this session and in our next two sessions. I think that's, that's a great thing to, to bring up. But, and there's other dialogues too, where Socrates does just, you know, unexplained things like he'll stand out in the cold, just standing frozen out in the cold. And uh, we wonder why he does that. So yeah, Socrates is an interesting character, at least the way Plato presents him, which is not necessarily the way the real Socrates was. So but we, we can have fun with that and try to figure out what he means by presenting this strange habit of Socrates. So thanks for raising that. And uh, we'll go to Darren. 
Yeah, it's a lot of uh, interesting stuff already that's come up. I was going to respond to uh, what was said earlier before Ernest's last comment, but I, I'll just quickly comment on the Socrates thing before I uh, go backwards. So another thing about Socrates that we already see is that he seems to be the object of many people's affections. Yeah, <laughs> many sure. people are drawn to him. So that's another aspect. And we also hear already that apparently he's not really affected by drink. Apparently he can drink as much and he'll still be like <laughs> rational and sober. Yeah, that's right. So I think like Socrates is being presented as a kind of like pretty odd and otherworldly figure. Like mm -hmm. the way he, you know, he's described as just like random, like literally just randomly standing <laughs> still and just something just like being lost in thought. And apparently people will call to him and, you know, he won't respond. He'll just keep standing there and thinking like he's presented as being pretty odd figure here, yeah. but also like someone that people are drawn to, like people seem to really, you know, love him. Basically, he reminds me of like many other world historical figures, at least the way he's being described here, like as being just somehow just out of the ordinary, like in a different dimension in a way, yeah, you know, yeah. like one comparison could be like how the historical Jesus was often described as being like weird and otherworldly mm -hmm. too, although admirable. So, um, and you know, you can, you can compare to any other, you know, many other world historical figures. There seem to be odd in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the, the thing I wanted to comment about before was, um, oh yeah. So this is regarding Ernest's first comment about how, um, dialogue so interesting that's filtered through these like third-party accounts um and people's memories and you know people telling other people <laughs> so Ernest said that like it, it's like it's almost isn't real right but actually I think like it could also be the opposite it could be because they're talking about what's most important and real and Plato was flagging that because so I liked what Eva said about how the subject of the dialogue is something super invisible <laughs> <laughs> Um, the topic is love. And when it comes to things that are very profound and significant and invisible, maybe like, what love is in it itself is invisible. Plato seems to conceal that in a lot of dialogues. And I think the, the comparison, probably the most <laughs> important comparison would be to the idea of the good. Because, you know, Plato's never going to come out <laughs> and tell you what it is. It's always couched in like dreams or myths or speeches people give when like they're they're somehow affected by something you know so it's it's not something that's approached necessarily in or or even in the parmenides it's you know it's approaching this although there's dialectic there it's like this really bizarre and confusing dialectic in the parmenides so it, it's very weird right okay we can't deny parmenides is weird <laughs> that dialogue so yeah so although like it could be that you know this is Plato's just describing you know illusion this is just a fun thing but it could also be that this is maybe he's flagging this one of the most important things and that's precisely why he's gonna like conceal it in all these layers which is what he does with actually what he does with the other really important most important thing for Plato the concept of what is the good so and um sorry I went on a long time just quickly <laughs> um so just tying this back in with James's opening of our conversation today the effect we get from all this banter they have and this they're like ribbing one another you know it's all it's all very friendly so I think we're just sort of being mentally prepared for, well, basically that, like a friendly, like non-combative conversation and where they are combative, they're just like joking with one another, right? Like they're not taking it personally. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I think that's, maybe that's related to this idea that they're talking about something that they're going to be cooperatively working together to try to find something important. And it's not like a contest or a fight uh, where things 
you know, we're often we feel uh, it seems like, you know, that's what you do with the sophists. And you're not necessarily, you know, working together for the truth. Whereas here, it feels like they're friendly. And, you know, at the end of this, the reading today, uh, Rick Samakis is going to like, you know, the, he sort of invites the next person to like take the stage. So it's, you know, it's very, just, they're, they're going to be cooperating today. That's a great observation, actually. I hadn't thought about it that way, but as you as you say it, it is maybe different from the way a sophist presentation would happen. And we looked at the sophist when we had the three sessions on the Protagoras, and here it is definitely a different setting. And so maybe that's exactly why he's done it that way, is to make it, as you say, a cooperative setting uh, where they're going to try to puzzle through something together where none of them knows for sure, and they're all kind of willing to listen to each other and make fun of each other about it. So I really like that. I think that's a good way of, of seeing it. And then I think you you said the important word invisible here, which Plato does talk about the difference between the visible and the invisible. And I think sometimes the invisible can be more important than what the visible is. And I think that comes through in a, in a number of his dialogues. The invisible, of course, being the domain of the soul, which you know, nobody can see a soul, we can see our bodies, we have the five senses, the five senses can sense the things that are physical, but the five senses do not sense the mental, which is the part of the soul. And so here we have this kind of invisible concept of love, which is a property or a characteristic of the soul. And Plato is most concerned about the soul. And maybe this whole thing about people loving Socrates, as he pointed out, is that they don't love him physically because he's actually you know, it starts off, actually, there's an interesting few words, you know, Socrates actually put on a new pair of sandals and actually washed. And this was a very rare thing, it says right at the beginning of this dialogue for Socrates to do. I mean, normally he went around barefoot and smelly and not caring about his appearance. And yet here, as you pointed out, Darren, you know, everybody loves him. Apollodorus loves him. Alcibiades at the end makes it like it, he's just absolutely smitten with Socrates and he makes this, this speech. So it's not physical Socrates that they love. I think it's the invisible soul of Socrates that they love. So maybe that's a, an important point here. So that, that's great to raise that. I appreciate that. Well, let me go on then and read this next part. It's kind of the introduction of the four speeches. And this is actually where, uh, just before Phaedrus speaks, this is where Ereximachus, who is a doctor, makes this little bit of an introduction. And I put this here just under the heading of what is the source of knowledge about love? And I think these speeches maybe all talk to that question. Uh, this is from 177a to 177e. And the interesting thing I found about this was the end where uh, Socrates says the only thing he understands is the art of love. So here's where Ereximachus is talking. And he starts off with quoting somebody else. Ereximachus, he says, isn't it an awful thing? Our poets have composed hymns in honor of just about any god you can think of, but has a single one of them given one moment's thought to the god of love, ancient and powerful as he is. As for our fancy intellectuals, they have written volumes praising Heracles and other heroes, as did the distinguished Prodicus. Well, perhaps that's not surprising, but I've actually read a book by an accomplished author who saw fit to extol the usefulness of salt. How could people pay attention to such trifles and never, not even once, write a proper hymn to love? How could anyone ignore so great a god? Now Phaedrus, in my judgment, is quite right. I would like, therefore, to take up a contribution, as it were, on his behalf and gratify his wish. Besides, I think this is a splendid time for all of us here to honor the god. If you agree, we can spend the whole evening in discussion, 
because I propose that each of us give as good a speech in praise of love as he is capable of giving in proper order from left to right. And let us begin with Phaedrus, who is at the head of the table and is, in addition, the father of our subject. No one will vote against that, Eryximachus, said Socrates. How could I vote no, when the only thing I say I understand is the art of love? Could Agathon and Pausanias? Could Aristophanes, who thinks of nothing but Dionysus and Aphrodite? No one I can see here now could vote against your proposal. So that's a, that little bit where I just wanted to point out that part at the end where Socrates says, that says, the only thing I say I understand is the art of love. And I don't really find anywhere else in the dialogue where that particular understanding is made explicit. I don't know what we want to make of this, but I just thought I would raise that because I think that's an interesting comment by Socrates that he actually understands this because Socrates usually goes around saying that he knows nothing. And that's apparently why the oracle at Delphi thought that Socrates was the wisest man alive for he knew one thing, is, which is that he knew nothing. And yet here he's saying he understands the art of love. And maybe that word art is a bit of a clue there. And I wonder about that. I don't know, in the original Greek, would that have been techne? I'm not sure. But we see these references to art throughout Plato's dialogues. And maybe this is a sign that love is not necessarily a subject of knowledge. Maybe it's a subject of art or skill, something that's acquired over time. So I just put that out there. I don't know what we're going to make of it, but uh, I thought I would raise that because I thought that was an interesting part of this. I'll go on now and read Phaedrus's speech. This is the first of the three speeches that we can get into today and in today's part of the reading that ends at 189. He talks here about shame, and shame is a theme that comes through here. It came through in the Protagoras. And I think we need to talk maybe a little bit about what they're trying to say here with respect to shame or what Plato's trying to say here with respect to shame and how that ties to love. So uh, this is from 178C to 179B. Phaedra says, all sides agree then that love is one of the most ancient gods. As such, he gives to us the greatest goods. I cannot say what greater good there is for a young boy than a gentle lover or for a lover than a boy to love. There is a certain guidance each person needs for his whole life, if he is to live well. And nothing imparts this guidance, not high kinship, not public honor, not wealth. Nothing imparts this guidance as well as love. What guidance do I mean? I mean a sense of shame at acting shamefully, and a sense of pride in acting well. Without these, nothing fine or great can be accomplished, in public or in private. What I say is this. If a man in love is found doing something shameful, or accepting shameful treatment because he's a coward and makes no defense, then nothing would give him more pain than being seen by the boy he loves, not even being seen by his father or his comrades. We see the same thing also in the boy he loves, that he is especially ashamed before his lover when he is caught in something shameful. If only there were a way to start a city or an army made up of lovers and the boys they love, Theirs would be the best possible system of society, for they would hold back from all that is shameful and seek honor in each other's eyes. Even a few of them, in battle side by side, would conquer all the world, I'd say, for a man in love would never allow his loved one, of all people, to see him leaving ranks or dropping weapons. He'd rather die a thousand deaths. And as for leaving the boy behind, or not coming to his aid in danger, why, no one is so base that true love could not inspire him with courage and make him as brave as if he'd been born a hero. When Homer says that God breathes might into some of the heroes, 
this is really love's gift to every lover. So that sense of shame there, does anybody have any thoughts on how that's fitting into uh, or how that could fit into the story of love? And in particular, I highlighted this, this part that's underlined here on the screen when Phaedra says, a city or an army made up of lovers and the boys they love, theirs would be the best possible system of society for they would hold back from all that is shameful and seek honor in each other's eyes. I mean, what's causing the shame? Who's to judge what's shameful and what's not shameful? Is there an issue here? And, and I thought that part about the city was interesting too, because the, the symposium actually happens, Darren, is, is it not after the day after they talk about the Republic? Oh, I, I don't know. I thought, yeah. I thought that was a, I thought that was um the Timaeus, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You okay. have to yeah. I, 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 I meant to look that up before and I ran out of time, but they, they are talking about some sort of civic organization here. And, you know, it does, I think, have some relevance to the Republic, whether that happened before this dialogue or not, but certainly in, in how to set up a city of people, a society of people. So uh, we'll go to Eva and then Darren. Eva. Yeah, I'm not so sure about the love part, but uh, the shame. I am wondering if that's something about the vulnerability or accepting that you have needs that you are not able to meet them, but you still need something. I don't know if Socrates will be taking this need to a to the small god at the back of his ear, some kind of like a divine understanding. But even with the most divine understanding, vulnerability is the power. It's like when you need things and you are open, it's, it's not easy. It's being needy is very hard. And I am super disappointed that I was just thinking it was being needy was a shame at this time, but now I am realizing maybe it was something hard to handle at all times. It's not easy. So shame could be uh, there. And I'm not sure about mentioning only the boys here. Is that like a translation or is, is that kind of like a, mentioning like a youth so i am not sure what that means here thank you i'm ready to learn yeah so am i actually that's that's an interesting question and i haven't really figured out that whole that whole connection with plato and why it's only men that they talk about in this uh and, and certainly you know boys when they talk about young boys here you know we draw the line now but maybe they didn't have such a, a line back then so that's well interesting... it could be the language because yeah. i speak turkish and in turkish there's a say there's a word called delikanlı which means the young man but now it means like young people but that was a language when they would say that word in turkish and i assume language might be the thing there so it means someone young or passionate but yeah. yeah i'm ready to learn there yeah i like that point about translation and maybe maybe the point here in the difference between young and old 
also relates to the way they talk about the God of love. Uh, right at the beginning, one of the speakers says that the God of love is the oldest God, whereas young people aren't necessarily introduced to that experience yet. Maybe their experience is more physical, not as geared towards the soul. And so maybe as one gets older, one learns about the soul and learns about that oldest God, the God of love, or at least they call it the oldest God. So maybe there is something there in terms of the age that they're trying to say, which I, I like that. That's an interesting point. And certainly the translation, in any translation, there's always questions of interpretation and the way the translator sees things. So I, I like that. Let's let's just think of that, that distinction maybe of young, meaning not having had much experience in life versus older, having gone through a lot of experiences. So thanks for that. So we'll go to Darren, then Steve, then Eleanor, then Clay. Darren. Well, regarding uh, this point about men and boys, so the ancient Greeks had this peculiar institution where an older man and a boy would have a relationship. <laughs> and um, I, I think sometimes it is sexual, but there are different ones which are more like other ones which are more like platonic, I guess you would say. And it is a sort of peculiarly <laughs> ancient Greek institution where these kinds of relationships exist. And it's sort of like a, a mentoring relationship, but sometimes it's sort of, you know, it's, um, but it spills over to romance and, and sex. And there's different views about this. Sometimes it seems like Plato seems to like look askance at this sort of relationship. So it's it is a very specifically ancient Greek thing. And it's interesting because it also shows like how love happens in very like culturally specific ways. Like hmm. ancient Greeks have this this weird institution, <laughs> um, but other uh, cultures have their own traditions. So that's something to reflect on. And I think this will come up later, right? In uh, Pausanias's speech yeah i think that's the next one mm -hmm. where he talks about customs but like what are just customs about love and what is love so that that immediately raises that question because they want to they want to give speeches to love not just to our customs of love <laughs> maybe maybe other people can explain that institution better and are more familiar with um that historical stuff so i just want to respond to this passage so i just really i i really love it <laughs> uh this features his speech here like he, he says if only there were a way to start a city or an army made up of lovers uh, those would be the best possible system of society and, and they could conquer all the world. And to me, I guess it's not that strange, like this view that like love inspires people, moves people to be better versions of themselves, um, to live up to, you know, their best selves and help one another live to their live up to their best selves. Like I think real, I think real genuine love actually does that. And it doesn't have to be towards like people necessarily like a posted video where like apparently <laughs> like taking care of animals in prison like help helps a lot of prisoners like inspires them to be better people i think that's just a thing <laughs> about mm -hmm. human beings and i really love this speech um because yeah it captures this idea so beautifully in some of the words that Phaedra says this gonna ties into your previous comment uh james that no one actually responded to i was thinking i, I was like maybe i was like socrates was frozen <laughs> and i was thinking um so i couldn't i didn't jump in in time but I, this ha this actually happens to be related so you talk about socrates and that line about how he understands the art of love and that's the only thing he understands i think that's right. what he says right well actually that's not so peculiar or weird for socrates to say that because of course philosophy itself is the love of wisdom and i often point out that when people say that define it that way people seem to be captured by the word wisdom but they forget like 
The other half of it is love. <laughs> the philosopher has love for wisdom. It's not just like a, it's not like a dry, unemotional thing. It's actually a kind of movement. So in Socrates, you know, the, the sort of archetype of the you know greatest philosopher, whatever, says that's all he knows. That shouldn't be a surprise in a way. Although, you know, it, it, it might come across that way. But when you think about it, it shouldn't be a surprise because philosophy is the love of wisdom, not just wisdom. If it's just about wisdom, it's not philosophy in a way or you're not a philosopher per se, you actually have to love it. So this ties into this idea in this uh, features of speech um, about how love helps us become better people because, and so this is related because you've seen other dialogues. I think it's love that it's being caught up in some sort of um, feeling that's like love that will take our direct towards the truth. And I think the contrast here would be to the sophists. Like sophists can be very good at logical reasoning but for whatever reason, they don't have, they haven't been caught up in love yet somehow. And I feel like Socrates is somehow often trying to maybe get them to maybe fall in love with philosophy. So you can use all the logic and reason and logic chopping you want, but you'll never get to the truth of, you know, what is the good and the truth of things in the world and truth of the world without having this sense of love, you know, for better or worse, I think this is their metaphysics, you know, yeah. you, you need it as well to get to the truth. Yeah, that, that, that's great, actually. The really good point to, to point out is that philosopher means love of wisdom. And so love is definitely part of that. Love isn't just necessarily romantic, physical sort of thing, but it's that love for wisdom, which I think we'll see developing as a theme in the dialogue. And certainly, as you, you point out, that contrast to the sophists, which are exchanging knowledge for money. And so maybe that's what Plato is trying to say is that money is kind of takes love out of the equation. So Socrates is doing this just purely for, for the love of it. Um, and maybe what you said too, about being culturally specific is an interesting thing, not just with respect to the, to the boys, but also with respect to shame. And so shame is something maybe that each culture has its own sense of shame. And you know, there's no, no universal sense of shame here, maybe. And that's something that we can think about as Shane keeps getting mentioned here in this dialogue. So so thanks for raising those points. Those are great. And um, we'll go to Steve, then Eleanor, then Clay. Steve. Just to, uh, to start with, just to first agree with and reinforce what uh, Darren was saying about the Greek system. I mean, it's, you know, historically pretty well established that the relationship between the older men and younger or young boys, you know, and they're talking young, they're talking 12, 13, you know, as soon as they start to uh, mature was very, very common. I mean, and the later speakers talk about it. They, you know, even talk about the difference between common love and heavenly love. The common love is directed towards women and uh, unintelligent boys. You know, you want to have the smart, beautiful boys. And, um, you know, the, there's some uh, discussion later on that they should wait a little while to let the boy mature in his uh, understanding of the world as far as intelligence. So, you know, that's that just reinforces that's one of the the argument that he heavenly love should be directed towards older boys, you know, maybe, you know, 14 or 15, you know, and, and you know, the whole system is called the pederastic bottle, which, you know, I think is the same route for where we're getting pedophile. So that's just, I think, historically accurate, you know, exactly what uh, Darren had said. But uh, to get to your original question about the talking about shame and love, I think these, these first three speeches that we're looking at, they're all uh, looking at, you know, in praise of the God, Eros, 
they're all talking from the perspective of their own personal experience or enterprise. They're talking about the different bonds of loyalty, uh, legitimacy of love, the practice of the older uh, philosopher or older male taking on a young boy. Basically, the system was they would teach them and raise them and mentor them in exchange for sexual favors and to pursue the understanding of the cosmos. But as far as having lovers for an efficient army, that pretty much was also the uh, model of many of the Greek armies also, or if most to some degree or another, some very strongly, like the Thebians were noted for and even made uh, uh, fun of by some of the other Greeks for how much they were into that, the relationships of two lovers fighting together as a team, and they were considered to be at one extreme. And and just to point out, too, that they considered uh, having children and um, being with a woman as part of your civic duty was, you know, the reason you were doing it was to uh, keep the the state going, that you had a duty to the state. And um, the one last thing is that, you know, how we even use the idea of you know, love for war is the love of country, you know, to shame people if you don't love your country, you're not supporting a war. So the same sort of feelings, how love is used as, as an instrument of a shame is, uh, you know, still something part of the modern uh, world. Thanks. Well, thank you. Uh, that background is really helpful, actually, I think, for, for context and uh you know, the civic duty thing that you said, I think was interesting too. It makes me, it reminds me of what Protagoras said, I think when he was asked, is war noble? I think was the question that he was asking. He says, yes, it's noble. I guess that's maybe just that sense of civic duty, maybe they're motivating him to say that. Uh, and maybe that's part of the shame thing. If you didn't say it was noble, then you would be shamed as part of your community for not supporting it. So that's an interesting connection. I really like the way too, that you connected the idea of common love to that connection with the younger and the heavenly love with the connection to the older, because that actually really, we'll see that in the next bit of the speech that I'll read from what Pausanias says. He makes that distinction between common love and heavenly love. Uh, so I think we'll see that. So that was a great connection actually to make. I hadn't thought about that. So thank you. And we'll go to Eleanor. Yeah, I um, think um, that shame and love are coming always together in a packaging. Let's say, for me, shame would be very old primitive feeling, which feeling which is existing in every culture, and it's rooted in naivety. Uh, I mean, not shame. Love is rooted in naivety, but shame comes with consciousness. As more conscious I am, so more shame I develop. I do imagine that young boys have no shame or less sh shame as older men or grown men, just because they are most likely unaware and in a stage of development and their consciousness is not quite there of our environment and social life. So therefore they're full of spirit and full of movement and um, energy, which is unstoppable because there is no shame. We, and um, it's kind of favorable for dreams. Uh, in order to dream big, you need no shame. You can't have shame. So there's said nothing is greater than a man, but nothing is more miserable as an old man. Um, yeah. 
I think love and shame come hand in hand together and both maybe old gods and um, inseparable. That's a really interesting uh, observation that you make about that connection of shame and love going together. And then you, you said that shame arises from a consciousness, I guess, and, and love from a naivete. Uh, it was really interesting way of presenting it, actually. You know, this consciousness, I guess, is consciousness not just of yourself, maybe, but also consciousness of how others see you. And maybe that's something that yes. only develops over time. Yeah, there's an animalistic behavior, and then I develop into a small boy, and then I will be a man. And between all three, there are um, stages of consciousness. I, I like that. That's, yeah, I, that's really, I think, really helpful. And we'll see maybe in the next session that we do where Socrates talks about what he learned from Diotima on love, maybe we'll see that connection of consciousness there. It's a really good way of thinking about the shame part is, is the consciousness and, and being self-conscious uh, and understanding how others see you. Uh, th that's great. Really appreciate that. Um, we'll go to Darren then. I just want to point out a couple of things from this passage still, uh, this section. So I, I really like the line later on that says that um, no one is so base that true love could not inspire him with courage and make him as brave as if he'd been born a hero. When a Homer says a God breathes might into some of the heroes, this is really love's gift to every lover. And then a little further down, talked about the eager courage of love uh, wins highest honors from the gods. So I just see features make a connection here between just in general, between love and virtue, I guess, like being a good person. You know, shame is part of it. I guess that's related to like, you know, doing something that's bad and not good. But here, you know, courage also comes in. And, you know, courage seems to have special interest for like a lot of virtue virtue theorists and people who try, try to like think about these things carefully. But I, I like the connection that's wrought here in this dialogue that like people are like how to become more courageous and they have all these like techniques and all that. And but at the end of the day, <laughs> I mean, as, as the dialogue in the Lakey shows, they courage might not be often in many situations and in many of the ways people describe courage it might not be a virtue because it could end up being a bad thing it could you know it could be directed towards a bad or it could be rash or whatever but here if if courage is related to love though i feel like that solves almost all the problems at least if you understand at least according to plato's version of love which is directed to you know good goodness and wanting to be a better person and then courage would just be that that strength of the love you know a person with a lot of courage just has a lot of strength has a powerful feeling for what is good in a situation if you just know the good that's not enough to have courage right that's always the problem you might know something is good yet but you but like how where do you where do you get the courage to do the good but if someone really is powerfully drawn to it then i feel like courage just comes along and this is exactly actually exactly what features is describing here so i'll just stop there for now i, I yeah I, I guess i just want to say that i i feel like the to me, what's interesting about it is that the general connection between love and becoming a better person in the sense of becoming a more virtuous one. Yeah. And that's really interesting what you said about courage. Uh, you know, having talked about that as one, maybe one of the virtues, you know, we encountered in the Protagoras, you know, but is it really a virtue if the courage is misdirected? So yeah, I like the way you connected that to love, you know, and, and the way you said it's courage could be the strength of the love. 
and not necessarily something else that's defined in advance as a universal virtue because i think we found problems with courage when we talked about the protagoras so so thank you for that that that's excellent um and clay your thoughts can't hear you still can't hear you clay is gone he'll be back oh, there he is is it working maybe Maybe you have to select your mic because on Zoom there's under the uh, the yeah. microphone button there's there's a little arrow and if you click it <laughs> right. you you might have different microphones you might have yeah, to connect yeah. the right one and then also make sure which whichever one's connected is 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 on. Yeah. I find that problem all the time when I'm switching between connections. Still okay, hear you. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. or maybe put it in the chat and we'll we can we can yeah. read it out for you okay. <laughs> if you want. Yeah. Or. Right. Well, yeah. We'll it'll, be great. it'll be great to hear yeah. from clay though yeah yeah, yeah no no we'll, for sure we'll, we'll come back to you clay when you uh when you get that because uh, i'd like to hear what you say um maybe what i'll do then in the meantime is go on and i'll just read this so this is basanius's speech or part of it so this starts at 180d to 181d basanius begins by addressing phaedrus he says phaedrus i'm not quite sure our subject has been well defined our charge has been simple to speak in praise of love this would have been fine if love himself were simple too. But as a matter of fact, there are two kinds of love. In view of this, it might be better to begin by making clear which kind of love we are to praise. Let me therefore begin by making clear which kind of love we are to praise. Let me therefore try to put our discussion back on the right track and explain which kind of love ought to be praised. Then I shall give him the praise he deserves as the God he is. It is a well-known fact that love and Aphrodite are inseparable. If, therefore, Aphrodite were a single goddess, there could also be a single love. But since there are actually two goddesses of that name, there are also two kinds of love. I don't expect you'll agree with me about these two goddesses, will you? One is an older deity, the motherless daughter of Uranus, the god of heaven. She is known as Urania, or heavenly Aphrodite. The other goddess is younger, the daughter of Zeus and Dione. Her name is Patamos, or common Aphrodite. It follows, therefore, that there is a common as well as a heavenly love, depending on which goddess is love's partner. And although, of course, all the gods must be praised, we must still make an effort to keep these two gods apart. The reason for this applies in the same way to every type of action. Considered in itself, no action is either good or bad, honorable or shameful. Take, for example, our own case. We had a choice between drinking, singing, or having a conversation. Now, in itself, none of these is better than any other. How it comes out depends entirely on how it is performed. If it is done honorably and properly, it turns out to be honorable. If it is done improperly, it is disgraceful. And my point is that exactly this principle applies to being in love. Love is not in himself noble and worthy of praise. That depends on whether the sentiments he produces in us are themselves noble. Now, the common Aphrodite's love is himself truly common. As such, he strikes whenever he gets a chance. This, of course, is the love felt by the vulgar who are attached to women no less than to boys, and to the body more than to the soul, and to the least intelligent partners, since all they care about is completing the sexual act. Whether they do it honorably or not is of no concern. That is why they do whatever comes their way, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and which one it is incidental to their purpose. For the love who moves them belongs to a much younger goddess, who, through her parentage, partakes of the nature both of the female and the male. Contrast this with the love of heavenly Aphrodite. 
This goddess whose descent is purely male, hence this love is for boys, is considerably older and therefore free from the lewdness of youth. That's why those who are inspired by her love are attracted to the male. They find pleasure in what is by nature stronger and more intelligent. Now, let's remember that this is Pausania speaking, not modern speaking. So what do we think of this particular speech of Pausanias? What struck me here a couple of times is he says, it is a well-known fact. He starts off uh, by saying, as a matter of fact, there are two kinds of love. Now, where is he getting these facts from? Maybe Socrates might uh, have something to say about Homer here. Uh, he did mention Homer earlier. So maybe it's this idea that the, the poets are directing us to think these things, which aren't necessarily true. They think that they're true, but maybe these are just stories that they're simply handing down. And maybe this is part of this uh, memory issue that uh, they start the dialogue with, that people are thinking that they know things as facts, but do they actually know them as facts? Or, or are they misremembering or misconstruing something that somebody said in the past? And you know, that through centuries and centuries of these stories going around, they think that they're true, uh, but maybe not. So yeah, what, uh, what do we think about this? So we'll go to Clay and then Eric. All right, did I get my sound issues solved here? You're working. Okay, fantastic. That's great. So one of the one of the things I was going to say, and just kind of as, and I think Phaedrus also kind of picks up the point is where in this previous telling, what we've got is, you know, we're talking about love, and this the you know our, our prior speaker just says, well, yeah, but no, nothing so great as when a man is looking for the love of his young man, and that that's the the purely the driver is this love between people and what creates the love and that what creates the shame is you know anything not virtuous that should happen to take place in front of that lover or you know desired one uh, and I think it's really interesting that the kind of the whole symposium starts off on that speech where we have this oh yeah well that we want to extol the wonders of love and the first example we have is a pretty I don't know, surface level one, where it's like the, the thing that guides you is your, the desire for your lover and the desire to not be rejected by your lover. And then Phaedrus comes in and is like, well, okay, yes, but maybe we need to do, look more deeply. Yes, but. <laughs> right. right. That's great. Yeah, the, the um, that connection to shame, you know, that, love can be connected with that shame in the first speech and then we're hearing in this speech that shame idea is being expanded to these two different kinds of loves you know so the common love is the one that's associated with shame maybe and the heavenly love is the one maybe where there isn't shame involved with it maybe that's uh that's an interesting distinction there and again that this, this play on the old versus the the young you know the common love is the young love whereas the heavenly one is the older one so there's definitely a, an interesting play on time and age in there uh, and i think that ties into what you were saying about shame too the common love being the one that's maybe more subject to that uh, or at least you know if there's a continuity between the two speeches maybe that's it so thank you for that um we'll go to eric and then eleanor Yes, I was going to bring, uh, it would be interesting to go over a bit the myths 
that they bring. I know one of them they brought up was how arrows came about, which was through uh, chaos, formed through chaos, and then the earth form. So they put Eros as the first god. And then obviously you have the second Eros, which is the son of Aphrodite. And then here they have two Aphrodites, uh, Urania and Pandemos. But I'm not too familiar with Pandemos, but I know with Urania, Aphrodite, she was born when Kronos castrated his father and the blood fell to the earth and gave birth to the Furies. And the ejaculate fell into the ocean mixed with the salt water and that's where Aphrodite gets her name um, I think it's uh, Aphros or Seafoam hmm. and then we all know that famous scene where she comes out of the clam shell and from the Seafoam but I don't really know kind of the connection I, I have my own ideas but I would like to hear anybody's thoughts on on that well, thanks. And I would too, actually, that that's really helpful background, I think, on those myths and, and why maybe those uh, names are being brought up here. So yeah, if anybody knows uh, more about Urania and Pandemos, the uh, the heavenly love and the common love, then yeah, well, that, let's work that into the discussion. Uh, so no, thank you for pointing that out. That's, that's very helpful. Very good to know that because we don't have common knowledge of those things these days. But uh, back then, of course, it would have been a lot more common. So Let's uh, let's find out more about that. So thanks for that, and Eleanor, and then Darren. Yeah, consciousness um, is also a reason why Adam and Eve were exposed to um, awareness of the environment and of themselves, and this is the point where they left paradise. Um, as more conscious I get so it turns also to a disadvantage and then love turns more into into an act of isolation and um, then we are talking not about this old and interesting love anymore so it's more obedience or a set of uh, uh, laws and rules and obediences and how do I follow it in the right way so I'm acceptable because I'm subconscious. Is that much I have to say? Yeah, that was fascinating actually when you mentioned Adam and Eve there, of course, when they all of a sudden were conscious that they were naked and and there was some sense of shame that descended upon them. And then that's when they left the Garden of Eden. Which is yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Actually, uh, let's 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 explore that. Maybe there's other things we can tie to that idea here. But uh, I really like the way you're bringing consciousness into this, and consciousness of your own position in a society where there are these laws and obediences, as you as you describe them. I, I think that's really that's a really interesting context to explore. Thank you for that, Darren. Your thoughts. What they want to talk about oh yeah this thing you brought up james about like where these facts are uh coming from so he, he describes like well-known facts or whatever <laughs> sorry i was looking at my dialogue i was trying to find this um passage but somewhere he says um nothing done properly and in accordance with our customs would ever have provoked such righteous disapproval Th that line 
uh, jumped out at me because he ties in like this idea of, of people having shame at doing certain things, but it's quite clearly flagged as in accordance with our customs here. And it's, it's interesting because Pausanias starts off saying how their subject isn't well-defined <laughs> and they have to be more clear about it. And it's interesting because I think uh, Eric Zemakis will also say the same thing. Like, oh, we're still not quite well-defined yet. We have to keep going further. But the thing is, the definition, like Pausanias takes, like he says some good things, interesting things, but like, I think to the reader, it's clearly already like not, <laughs> still not defined well enough. We don't, we don't need Eryximachus to tell us because in the end, he just starts describing these different customs of different societies. And, you know, you wonder like, well, is this what love is? Or is this what the Greeks think love is or how the Greeks practice love? Because then he describes these weird, these institutions. And he was like, this is the only way to do love properly. And I'm like, I, no, I don't, I don't know if that's really true. Like, this is the only way really, but but Posani is, is quite conscious, though, that he's he's describing a Greek custom. But of course, he's he dignifies it as saying it is the only way to do it properly or something like that. He also says uh, it is the common vulgar lover who loves the body rather than the soul. The man whose love is bound, um, who, whose love is bound to be inconstant, since what he loves is itself mutable and unstable. So this also made me think, like, if the, what they're describing is really love. Because that sounds more like maybe lust. <laughs> maybe they have to make some distinction there. Because if someone just loves, you know, the body rather than the soul, um, and it's inconstant, I mean, that just sounds like lust to me. So that doesn't really sound like love per se. So there's maybe a mix up of concepts here. So just wrap up with this, like, quick. Uh, I'll try to <laughs> quickly wrap up here, which is that. So this is not unlike other dialogues of Plato's. Then, so this dialogue might seem a bit different because you know they're they're sort of having this like friendly, you know, semi-drunken party and they're giving speeches. But there's a way in which it's similar to other dialogues because many of the other dialogues regarding the virtues, uh, whether it's courage or temperance or whatever, they they all be like when they're exploring definition and trying to figure out what this virtue is, they they all start with like <laughs> people volunteering certain definitions, which turn out to be just like culturally specific ones. They're just merely, you know, conventional. And 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 Plato recognizes this, that Plato was was aware of different cultures and different customs. So Plato's aware that there's a difference between what is merely of our culture and what might be a universal thing that is that is justice or that is courage. And so and we're trying to figure that out as philosophers, that the the it's it's philosophy that gets us thinking about what that thing is in itself. That's not just like some culturally specific practice. So, so that's all. Like there's like like this, although the dialogue might seem different and special, but in this way, it's not unlike other dialogues. Like each of these characters, I think they do say something interesting. I'm not, we shouldn't completely disregard what Pausania says or completely disregard what Phaedra says or what the next person, Erexamachus says, but they're also going to be problematized or problematic in a way because they're, they're only describing what is, what is kind of superficial, what just like act, like there's, there's just certain ways of acting like, oh, a virtuous or temperate person that's described in the Carmides, um, like how a virtuous or temperate person acts or looks like, but it's all superficial and conventional. So, and that's just, this is just like other dialogues where we're describing maybe certain conventional manifestations of love. Yeah, that, that's great, actually. And uh, it just what you said brought me to this last bit that I read about stronger and more intelligent. And maybe that's a reference to uh, sort of cultural sensibility or something. Maybe that's what uh, Pausanias is trying to say in that. 
which isn't necessarily true, but I think as you pointed out, actually a really good point that you, you made is, you know, what is love in itself? And that question in itself keeps coming up in Plato's dialogues, as you say, you know, what is virtue in itself? What is knowledge in itself? Without all of these other things, like, you know, the, the dialogue, the Mino, they try to define virtue in asking whether it's teachable. And so if something's teachable, it needs to be defined. Can you define it? They couldn't define it. And here they're calling into question the definition. You know, have we properly defined, we're setting out to make these speeches, but we haven't properly defined it. And then so he offers, Pisanias offers a bit of a definition. So, uh, so yeah, a very good point to make. What is love in yeah. itself? Yeah. And, sure. and, and the mystery about teaching virtue is that if you haven't defined what virtue in itself yet, like how do you know how to teach it? But the, yeah. it, the interesting thing is like there are the conventional definitions of virtue, like things that are conventional that are considered virtuous. Like those things, interestingly, can be taught in conventional ways, like they're sort of skills and habits and ways of um, acting. But like it's what virtue itself is that is that is sort of the curious question. Yeah. Yeah, how to teach that how to get people to access what virtue itself is, rather than just like okay. what our culture thinks virtue looks like in the surface. Right. Yeah, and that actually makes me think about what uh, what we started talking about when Socrates says, "I understand the art of love, but maybe not what love itself is, but the way it's practiced." And maybe that's an interesting distinction there. So I, I think we've we've hit on a number of really good connections here. I, I think that's really important. So thank you, um, Steve. Your thoughts like to agree with Darren again about the uh, superficiality of these uh, first three speakers. I think they're really setting the stage for Aristophanes and Socrates. I think these three are, are all talking about personal experience and, and you know, what, what it means to be the experience of love, but they're not really going into the source or what love is. And to the, uh, the ideas of the two types of love, the common and the, you know, higher and the two gods, the uh, male god, which is the heavenly, more um, grandiose love that they're, they're admiring, the higher love, and the female. Uh, if you take a look from like a Joseph Campbell sort of comparative theology, philosophy sort of view, you know, from his point that the older societies that were agricultural, there was a lot more of the female goddesses it was all about fertility and the crops and, and being close to the, the earth. And when with the rise of the city-states and the warrior class, uh, the idea of the male being the predominant and females being pushed into the background because they didn't have the strength to be part of the, the warrior class. So I think that's it's a good example of you know, their views of uh, love being of the two types and also uh, their gods, you know, why they have the two different types of gods. The one is the remnants from the strands from the, the agricultural society, which is still, you know, they're not the people in these stories, but the people living on the land, many of them probably still had the, the old goddesses that they, they prayed to to make sure that the crops came in or that their uh, delivery of the birth went well and things of that nature. So they were living in that, but they were the the elite class that was, you know, the ones that were the warriors and dominating everybody else. So that's why that version of the god became the more prominent or higher uh, god, you know, just from that interpreting it from a comparative uh, philosophy sort of perspective. 
That's great. And the historical perspective is really interesting too. And, and the distinction that you, you drew to our attention between the male and the female, it just occurred to me in our next session, we'll start with the speech by Aristophanes in which he tells this very odd story about how humans originated as spheres and the spheres were cut in two. And so each one of us is half of a sphere and we're searching for the other half. So maybe that's the male and the female distinction here may well be important in Aristophanes' story. So let, let's keep what you said in mind about that at the beginning of the next session when we talk about Aristophanes' story. So thanks for that. And um, Darren and, and then Eric. So uh, I criticize this uh, speech, Pausanias, but as I said, I, I do think each of these speeches have like good things about them. So I just want to mention one part of this that I think is interesting. I don't know, like, I should say good part per se, but like suggestive things that uh, of things that are true. And of course, in, in the other dialogues that I was comparing to, although like each of the definitions, you know, of virtue of their virtues they'd explore do go wrong. They're always suggestive of what the what the truth might be, right? You just have to keep going with the dialectic and with philosophy. And Socrates is sort of the person who midwives that process. It's not that we should reject. I, I personally don't think it's that we should reject these speeches outright. Like I personally really love Petrus' speech. I think it was beautiful. And I think he was saying something true. Like Clay was saying, it, it might be a bit superficial that if someone just wants to avoid shame just um, because they don't want to get rejected. But I think... It, it is kind of superficial, but it is, it, I, I think that's true in a way. That's like where, where a lot of um, good people wanting to be good begins, right? It, it, it's like a beginning of our motivation to be good. But I think uh, like if Phaedra's speech doesn't, it, it's true that it doesn't get to the crux of what is love. He talks about just the effects of love. I think Eryximachus will criticize this later. So um, coming back to Pausanias. So he says here that, hang on, this is uh, 182C. Um, so this actually is sort of an echo. It's interesting echo what Phaedrus said regarding a city or an army made up of lovers and how they can conquer the world. So here's another sort of political point. That's an echo. Pausanias says, by contrast, in places like Ionia and almost every other part of the Persian Empire, taking a lover is always considered disgraceful. So they don't like love there. Uh, the Persian Empire is absolute. That is why it condemns love as well as philosophy and sport. It is no good for rulers if the people they rule cherish ambitions for themselves or form strong bonds of friendship with one another. So, like, what a prescient point. Like, this idea that an absolutist government or polity does not like love because love forms bonds of friend. Is, um, because if people love one another, they have bonds of friendship with one another and they have ambitions for themselves and have relationships with themselves. And it says here that philosophy and sport do the same thing. So this is so prescient because we see, I, I think we do see like in totalitarian absolutist societies, they want to get rid of civil society. Like the bonds are not between the, the person, I don't even call it citizen, like, like the subject and the state. Like those are the only bonds that can like, those must be the strongest bonds, the only ones that exist to the abstract thing that is the state or the race, but not to each other. That's dangerous. Like, that will destabilize the polity. So they, all, they always try to like undermine or, or get rid of civil society which are citizens forming bonds with another with each other and organizations with one another and groups and relationships are not uh, among citizens are not with this directly with the state they're sort of independent powers and forces and follow their own independent trajectories and growth that's not directed by this absolutist state and it's interesting that the this is described the persian state is described as being absolute and which is why they don't like philosophy and love 
So anyway, I just want to point that out. It's so interesting that each of these speeches too, like have this like point about politics thrown in, like, like Plato just can't resist. <laughs> like they just have to make some random point about politics. So I, I know I really like this, just like I really like Phaedrus' observation about a city and army of lovers. I, I really like this little point here that Fied, uh, Pausanias makes. That's great. And, and actually you, you took me into the next reading that I was going to do in any event, which was 181E to 182C with talking about that part about the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is absolute. This is why it condemns love as well as philosophy and sport. It is no good for rulers if the people they rule cherish ambitions for themselves or form strong bonds of friendship with one another. And that did make me think of uh, some regimes maybe now or in history, which organize, societies are organized in that way, but love is is a hindrance to the goal of the of the leader uh, or the leaders uh, and so that's an interesting point to make so yeah definitely i i wanted to draw attention to that part about the the absolutist uh, so i think that was very helpful thank you and yeah it, what you say i think there probably is a grain of truth in each of the speeches and i think that's why plato and i think plato always does that is he doesn't just present a speech to be completely spurious but uh, there's always a point in some some sort of truth even if it's not being said or expressed as if it were truth but we're to find some truth i think in what everybody's saying because everybody experiences love a different way i guess so why shouldn't there be a whole variety of perspectives on it so so thank you for that um and we'll go to eric and then steve yes it's very interesting how the persian empire is brought up because this morning, I was reading an interesting piece surrounding Anaximander, which uh, potentially was a mentor to Pythagoras. And just to make a long story short, there was a, a city in Asia Minor called Miletus, which was under the Persian Empire. And it was a city that was kind of like the melting pot of Egyptian thought, Greek thought, every kind of thought. And I, and I think it lends to the idea of love of knowledge and kind of its byproducts. And Anaximander is credited with creating the first real accurate map of the entire known world at that time. So it's quite interesting just being someone who lives in the city and you have access to all these individuals who are very smart, have these different ideas. And you kind of blend it into this new thing. I think it, I think it speaks a lot about um, kind of the power of this. And then they also spoke of the unfortunate event that the tyrant of Miletus revolted against the Persian Empire, and the Persians killed all the men, sold all the women and children to slavery, castrated all the boys so they would never procreate. Um, yeah. That, that's really helpful to know that history in that context. And I think you know, maybe you're talking a little bit about what Darren said or reminding us what Darren said earlier about philosophy, that word containing love in it. So there's different kinds of love and you know the success they had at Miletus and other places in gathering all of this great you know, amounts of knowledge together, uh, I think that is maybe an expression of love in, in that sense. So that's that's definitely good to recall. Thank you for that. Um, and we'll go to Steve. 
Yeah, I think this argument about the Persians is definitely a straw man or fallacious argument because, you know, or somewhere else in the dialogue, they're making fun of the Persians because they love women. You know, that's I think it's from their point of view that the because the Persians don't take young boys as lovers from that, they're saying that they're uh, they don't believe in love taking a lover. Well, they're saying that their society is is not set up the same way as the Greeks, which you know, the, the idea that you have to have a, a young boy as a lover. And so using that as, a, as you know, saying it's because they're absolutist is why they're, uh, you know, they, they have this, you know, because they're absolutist, they don't take young boys as lovers. So therefore they're, they're you know, so terrible. And also there's, even though, you know, it's again, the, the Persians are the enemies of the Greeks and they're fighting there uh, for hundreds of years. And you know the Persians definitely had philosophy, and and they they had a lot of of intermixing with uh, Indian uh, philosophy also. So because they they have to realize that at the other side of the Persian Empire is is India. So the moving of ideas, slow as it might have been, between the West and India came through Persia, you know, and the idea that the Persians did all these terrible things when they overtook a country, you know, it's. You know, the Greeks were doing the same sort of things. Alexander the Great, when he, uh, was it, I think it's Thebes, he destroyed the whole city and burned it down completely and rubbed salt in the grounds. And the Greeks had slaves and they took uh, slaves wherever they had battle. And I'm sure they did things like castrating the, you know, or killing the people that were not useful to them. So I just think this, in this case, this argument is based on his bias and prejudices, and it's not a good argument for a Greek, their version, limited version of democracy, very limited version of democracy compared to a um, monarchy, which was, you know, pretty common throughout a lot of the world at that time. So just thinking that argument is, is, doesn't hold up. Yeah, and, and certainly the reading of history here can certainly be different. Maybe back in Plato's day, it was seen one way, and now it's seen a different way. And we, I think we always have to be careful in interpreting history to support our views if we don't know the full story. So I, I think you you really put your finger on a, on a good point there. Um, and so... I guess maybe you know if it's not if it wasn't Persia, you know maybe there's other tyrannies now or in history that really do not promote love, and maybe we see examples of this now. So whether it was Persia or some other example, I mean, there's there's probably in history, I guess there's there's a, a spectrum where where some societies promote it and other societies don't. So maybe that's more the point that we can take from this rather than. Uh, any misreading of what actually happened in the Persian Empire. So that's a, that's a good point. I think a very fair point. Uh, go to Eric and then Darren. Or Eric. Yeah, I was just, I was going to reiterate what was just said because there definitely seems there there is bias towards the East Asia Persian Empire because uh, this was after the Persian invasion uh, invasion of Greece, and then obviously the myths are also steeped in the West versus the East since uh, uh, Minos versus Theseus and um, the Trojans versus the Greeks. I think uh, I, I definitely agree with you, James. We have to make it more general of maybe it's uh, of, a, of a love that's 
not based on tyranny and ambition and certain characteristics. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. And, and also in this section two, uh, there was talk about creating laws, you know, they, I just highlighted this part in the screen a little bit earlier than that uh, section, on uh, two paragraphs earlier than the section on the Persian Empire, uh, where it says, for this reason, we have placed every legal ob obstacle to their seducing our wives and daughters. These vulgar lovers are the people who have given love such a bad reputation that some have gone so far as to claim that taking any man as a lover is, it, is in itself disgraceful. And maybe this whole section is talking about laws regulating love. And maybe this is some things that we see over time. Maybe these these themes are pretty consistent over time. I don't know. So yeah, it, maybe that's it's a question of the general idea here about you know regulations affecting love uh, and where those regulations come from. So thanks for that, um, Darren. Yeah. So I, I pretty much just want to make the same point, which is that it's it's not so much the the Persian Empire per se that's interesting to me here, right? <laughs> it's like that could be you know accurate or not. Um, or it could just be biased. Um, but it's it's more about the connection being made between a regime that's being called absolutist here, which was an interesting choice of words, and why they why absolutist regimes want to uh, repress love and philosophy and sport, because these are the things that, as it's being described here, form or about bonds between citizens themselves and not directly with you know the ruler or the state or whatever, described here as being cherishing ambitions for themselves or form strong bonds with each other. So anyway, yeah, so I just wanted to say that, like, it's it's the conceptual connection between absolutism and love that's interesting, not so much about the Persian Empire, per se, which could be wrong, I acknowledge, but the, the fact that they have this concept, this idea, this connection is is what's interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, Steve? Just a quick response. I don't, I don't really, I haven't ever heard any evidence about absolute regime, regimes stopping love. You know, I think throughout societies, there's a pretty, I just never heard any evidence of that. I think the case he's giving is not well-founded. And I, you know, I'd have to hear some other examples of that, you know, that it's a point worth making. And that's a fair point. I think that, and maybe it's a question of whether love of any particular type is regulated against. You know, I guess certainly we have seen examples in more recent history about, you know, love between men and love between women being kept underground, whether it's by regulation or by custom. So maybe maybe there are some things that we can think of in that respect. I think that's that's helpful. And we have about 20 minutes remaining, and I just wanted to get to the themes of virtue, harmony, and discord that kind of end off this section that we're reading today. Pausanias has another part of his speech, and then we can get to Eric Symmachus, maybe if we have a bit of time. So, Darren. For sure, we need we we need to get Eric Symmachus because he, he he sort of opens up our, our, our thinking about love a lot more. Love becomes a much yeah. more general thing for him, like a force in yeah. the universe. I just want to make a quick response to Steve. So I I mean, there's a lot of different aspects of love that each of these speeches have already brought out. Like there's, there's just different things about them. And so I think what was interesting about this absolutism thing is that it's also really to philosophy and sport. Just the, the whole passage just sort of rings very presciently because it's also true that absolutist states these days often control sport themselves. Like the sport is like state organized. It's not like sport is not like a civil organized. It's not part of civil society. So I, I don't know, like the point here is not about condemning uh, it, it's describing how these states condemn love in this specific aspect 
that's related also related to philosophy and sport. And the reason it's condemned, the connection being drawn here is because of the bonds that citizens end up forming amongst themselves and they end up sharing amb cherishing ambitions for themselves. It's not saying it's rejecting love in this maybe some very general aspect, but in this specific respect that's being described. And I think that's the connection that's interesting, you know, but whether, I mean, I'm sure there was love in the Persian empire, you know, in, in other respects, but in this particular respect, I think it's interesting. That's a good connection actually to, to sport as well. So uh, yeah, thanks for raising that. Um, I just wanted to read this little bit at the end, near the end of Pisanias' speech, because he talks about subjection. And then after that, I, I thought I could read what Erickson Mickett says about the universality of love. So this is 184C to 185. I'll just maybe read this one paragraph where Pisanias says, our customs then provide for only one honorable way of taking a man as a lover. In addition to recognizing that the lover's total and willing subjugation to his beloved's wishes is neither servile nor reprehensible, we allow that there is one and only one further reason for willingly subjecting oneself to another, which is equally above approach. That is subjection for the sake of virtue. If someone decides to put himself at another's disposal because he thinks that this will make him better in wisdom or in any other part of virtue, we approve of his voluntary subjection. We consider it neither shameful nor servile. Both these principles, that is, both the principle governing the proper attitude towards the lover of young men and the principle governing the love of wisdom and of virtue in general, must be combined if a young man is to accept a lover in an honorable way. When an older lover and a young man come together and each obeys the principle appropriate to him, when the lover realizes that he is justified in doing anything for a loved one who grants him favors, and when the young man understands that he is justified in performing any service for a lover who can make him wise and virtuous, and when the lover is able to help the young man become wiser and better, and the young man is eager to be taught and improved by his lover, then and only then, when these two principles coincide absolutely, is it ever honorable for a young man to accept a lover. He goes on a little bit later in this to talk more about virtue when he says, for he too has demonstrated something about himself, that he is the sort of person who will do anything for the sake of virtue. And what could be more honorable than that? So virtue and honor is definitely a theme that Pisanias is um, expounding on here. And again, you know, what is virtue? You know, we had that long discussion and good discussion when we read the Pythagoras. I mean, what is virtue and who's defining virtue here? Is it something that society defines? Is it something that the leaders define? Is it something that customs define? So there's this connection here that I think maybe we need to be careful about. How does this sense of virtue come about? So I wanted to highlight that connection or, or discussion about virtue there. And then I thought I would read this. This is near the end of today's reading from 186a to 187c. This is Eric Simicus talking, and he's talking about the universality of love. So Eric Simicus is a doctor, and he uses medical analogies for this, which, and medical analogies are actually fairly common in Plato's writing. And maybe there's a reason that he brought a doctor in here to talk about love. So this is Eric Simicus speaking after Pisanias. So Pisanias introduced a crucial consideration in his speech though in my opinion, he did not develop it sufficiently. Let me try, therefore, to carry his argument to its logical conclusion. His distinction between the two species of love seems to me very useful indeed. But if I have learned a single lesson from my own field, the science of medicine, is that love does not occur only in the human soul. It is not simply the attraction we feel toward human beauty. It is a significantly broader phenomenon, 
it certainly occurs within the animal kingdom and even in the world of plants. In fact, it occurs everywhere in the universe. Love is a deity of the greatest importance. He directs everything that occurs, not only in the human domain, but also in that of the gods. Let me begin with some remarks concerning medicine. I hope you will forgive my giving pride a place to my own profession. The point is that our bodies manifest the two species of love. Consider for a moment the marked difference, the radical dissimilarity between health and disease constitutions and the fact that dissimilar subjects desire and love objects that are themselves dissimilar. Therefore, the love manifested in health is fundamentally distinct from the love manifested in disease. And now recall that, as Pausanias claimed, it is as honorable to yield to a good man as it is shameful to consort with a debauched. Well, my point is that the case of the human body is strictly parallel. Everything sound and healthy in the body must be encouraged and gratified. That is precisely the object of medicine. Conversely, whatever is unhealthy and unsound must be frustrated and rebuffed. That's what it is to be an expert in medicine. In short, medicine is simply the science of the effects of love on repletion and depletion of the body. And the hallmark of the accomplished physician is his ability to distinguish the love that is noble from the love that is ugly and disgraceful. A good practitioner knows how to affect the body and how to transform its desires. He can implant the proper species of love when it is absent and eliminate the other sort whenever it occurs. A physician's task is to effect a reconciliation and establish mutual love between the most basic bodily elements. What are those elements? They are, of course, those that are most opposed to one another. As hot as to cold, bitter to sweet, wet to dry, cases like those. In fact, our ancestor Asclepius first established medicine as a profession when he learned how to produce concord and love between such opposites. That is what these poet fellows say, and this time I concur with them. Medicine, therefore, is guided everywhere by the god of love, and so are physical education and farming as well. Further, a moment's reflection suffices to show that the case of poetry and music, too, is precisely the same. Indeed, this may have been just what Heraclitus had in mind, though his mode of expression certainly leaves much to be desired. The one, he says, being at variance with itself is in agreement with itself, like the attunement of a bow or a lyre. Naturally, it is patently absurd to claim that an attunement or a harmony is in itself discordant, or that its elements are still in accord with one another. Heraclitus probably meant that an expert musician creates a harmony by resolving the prior discord between high and low notes. For surely there can be no harmony so long as high and low are still discordant. Harmony, after all, is consonance, and consonance is a species of agreement. Discordant elements, as long as they are still in discord, cannot come to an agreement, and they therefore cannot produce a harmony. So that was the section I wanted to read where the idea of harmony comes into things and in the context of the body, maybe using the analogy of the body, uh, whether the analogy is well expressed as we understand bodily functions now, could be different, but uh, maybe there is some connection there uh, with the bodily functions, which is what Eric Simicus is trying to say. So Steve, your thoughts on it? Yeah, when I was listening to this uh, dialogue, one of the interesting things was when he talks about the uh, cure for hiccups. It's like, I didn't realize how Plato was the source of a lot of our common cures for hiccups about holding your breath and gargling water and uh, sneezing and being scared by somebody. I thought that was interesting and funny. But I think that uh, it goes along with, you know, adding a little historical action to it again is the the theory of humors or the bodily fluids was was a predominant uh, 
medical viewpoint, like different body fluids of blood and bile and things that they had to be in balance that were, we see Middle Ages, movies about the Middle Ages where we see people being bled. That's the doctor had thought there was an imbalance in the, the humors, as they're called, the different fluids. So I think what the way he's talking is in that line of the medical theory of the time about keeping body in balance. And they also use the diet and, you know, exercise and those things, but uh, just my thoughts on that. Yeah, for sure. And, and there was, as you say, that idea of a balance inside the body. And, you know, I guess the body is a biological organism and a biological organism has to have some sort of internal balance. I mean, I think that principle still stands, but it's, you know, not necessarily through bleeding and things that they used to do or leaching. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the important thing here is this connection with discordance and accordance and attunement and all of that. It's, it's almost using some musical kind of ideas uh, as well as bodily ideas, I think. So as Darren said earlier, maybe there's, if, if not whole truth in this, maybe there are some grains of truth is that there is some element of harmony and love that makes it uh, special. I mean, love is, again, as I said earlier, I think it's a, not a physical property. It's a property or a, or a characteristic of the soul. So how does one soul harmonize with another soul? Maybe that's an important thing. Maybe that's why he's bringing harmony into here is, is that harmonization of souls. And it's, again, you know, that invisible part of us, is, as was said earlier, that's important there, not the visible. Um, so, yeah, a good, good point to, to bring out. So thank you for that. And Darren. So, I mean, each of these speeches so far, like, tap into different things, and they're all interesting. <laughs> like the first speech features, I really liked, like, the connection between love and the motivation that's required to be a better person. I think there's something really true there. Um, but here in this, it's, it's just, this speech is much, it's less about ethics. It's more about metaphysics. It's about how love is like the harmonizing force in the universe. It's the force that brings things together and makes things harmonious. And we, we somehow recognize that maybe because, you know, we have a bit of that in ourselves, like whether it's music or in medicine, it, it's, it's in all the realms. It's so interesting, right? Like this, the, the one before this, Pausanias was talking about customs of love. And here it's just, Eryximachus totally blows it up. It becomes much wider all of a sudden, like from these peculiar weak, uh, Greek, sorry, not Greek customs that Pausanias describes. And now we're talking about the entire universe as being made up of love. Um, and it's a force in the, it's coursing through everything in the universe, bringing things into harmony. However, like all the other speeches, there's also issues with this one. So um, if it's okay, I, I like to read because I, I think the, the section of the seasons that comes later is actually quite interesting. Sure. Um, hang on. Oh, hang on. Where is it? Oh, yeah. 188. Right. 188A. So he says, um, yeah, I'll just read a, this short paragraph. So here he says, even the seasons of the year exhibit their influence, like the influence of love. When the elements to which I have already referred, hot and cold, wet and dry, are animated by the proper species of love, they are in harmony with one another. Their mixture is temperate and so is the climate. Harvests are plentiful. Men and all other living things are in good health. No harm can come to them. But when the sort of love that is crude and impulsive controls the seasons, he brings death and destruction. He spreads the plague and many other diseases among plants and animals. He causes frost and hail and blights. All these are the effects of the immodest and disordered species of love on the movements of the stars and the seasons of the year. That is, on the objects studied by the science called astronomy. Okay, so <laughs> there's that. 
this is so it's kind of weird to me this section because first of all that doesn't really sound like love to me he calls it a species of love that does this so there's a species of love that does the good stuff and then there's a species of love that does this horrible stuff like give you plagues and inhale and you know causes things to die so i don't know that might be a problematic aspect of this and it, it might come down to the problem of it seems like eryximachus i'm sorry I, i'm pronouncing the name differently it might be wrong it's just how i've gotten used to saying it <laughs> uh eryximachus there might be a confusion in his own view, right? Um, he, like, he might be confused about some things. Notice that each of them claim to be helping fix the problems in the previous speech, but then they end up all having their own problems. So maybe one of the issues for Eric Samakis' speech is that he talks about two species of love, but then at other times he talks about like the effects of love of its one thing. And it could have good or it's like how love is directed or something like that. I'm pretty sure this happens. There's this ambiguity in his view between whether there's one love that could be directed differently or something and it, or whether there's two species of love. So there, in any case, there's like there seems to be some conceptual confusion about what love actually is. And maybe in, in fact, so what he's describing, for instance, about the seasons, that might not even be love at all. Maybe that's a lack of love. Maybe it's the lack of disharmonizing force that causes plagues and hail and all this, you know, disorder. But of course, rather, he calls it a different species of love, which is kind of confusing because that's not usually what we associate with love so or harmony. So at least it's leaving room for maybe an intervention from someone else, the next person, next speaker, or Socrates later. So just a final observation would be like that this would not be unlike other dialogues then, right? Like, for instance, just one example, the Republic, where we hear Thrasymachus give a long speech about his version of love and, or, or sorry, of justice, and it ends up having problems. It, you know, in, in that sense, it's, similar to other dialogues. We're, we're going to see a progression here. Mm -hmm. So, And there's good and bad things about the view that Eriksamak is presenting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that, uh, you know, looking for that progression. So let's look for that progression in the next two sessions that, that we're going to have. And I, I think you touched on an interesting thing is that maybe Eriksamakis talks too much about the physical. So he's trying to use a physical analogy for something that is not physical. And maybe that doesn't quite work, but maybe, you know, as you said earlier, maybe there's some grains of truth in that that we can take, but the analogy may not work perfectly because the physical has limits and love doesn't necessarily have limits. Um, so that's uh, an interesting point. And then as you were talking about, I think you kind of almost said there's a bit of the universe inside each of one of us. And that actually made me think of the philibus, Plato's philibus that we talked about, where the statement is made that the universe itself has a soul and reason. And I remember when we were talking about that, I made the statement that, well, you know, if each one of us has a soul or, or a motivating force in each one of us, then surely we don't have anything more that the universe has. So then logically, if we have it, the universe must have it. So if we have a soul and the soul is capable of love, maybe the logic would extend to the universe then that the universe, if it has a soul like we do, uh, is also capable of love. And why wouldn't the universe love us if we are part of the universe? Would the universe hate part of itself? So interesting bit of philosophy there. But I, I like that when you said it, it, it triggered in my mind that discussion that we had on the philibus and that point about the universe having a soul, which maybe we can come back to because I think maybe that might be important. So thanks for, for raising those. Those are, those are great. And we'll go to Eric. Yeah, a lot of great ideas. Uh, definitely very complex, but in total agreement uh, with both of uh, what was said. I think 
I would argue for the physical case and I'll use uh, Jungian and depth psychology. There's a notion of psychosomatic where the physics of the levitic energy somehow manifest into an illness if there's any sort of discourse in in the human psyche. And it was also interesting hearing the seasons and how the way I see it, you know, if you love another person, you're going to want them to have clean water. So then it, it extends to a love of, of, of the earth and you want to treat it as best as you can. And if not, then you have these today uh, weird weather patterns that are bringing droughts, flooding, uh, crazy storms. So I think it, there is some physical aspects. Uh, another idea that comes to mind, I mean, there's a, there's a lot that's swimming in my mind, but one that comes to mind is the idea of matter. And in Greek, I think it's translated from like mater. And that has a very large commonality with other languages for the word mother. But yeah, those are, those are my thoughts. That's good. And, and you know, certainly the earth is you know, kind of always portrayed as a mother kind of context, you know, Gaia, the, the god of the earth. Um, and so, you know, this idea of sustaining us maybe uh, is important. Um, and I think what we're talking here is going to lead well into what we'll talk about in the next session. Uh, in the next session, we will cover until 2.12, which is the end of Socrates' speech. And we'll hear Socrates talk about his discussion with Diotima, the, the mysterious Diotima. Um, she never maybe really existed, could be a figment of Plato's imagination, but Socrates has this long discussion with her. And the upshot of that uh, seems to be that love is seeking the eternal. So somehow there is a seeking of the eternal and whether maybe we do it through the body, the earth, you know, maybe all of these kind of metaphors are being brought up to lead up to that discussion with Diotima in the next session that we'll uh, that we'll have when we'll look at the second part of the symposium. I think we can keep all of these points in mind. I think they're all very much tied to what's going to come in. And I think that's uh, I think Plato has really set up the dialogue well to to lead into the next session. So we are nearly out of time, but Darren, uh, any last thoughts to take us out of the first session on the symposium? Right. Um, well, I feel like we we can't discuss Eryximachus without mentioning Aristophanes' response immediately afterwards because it's great, and I think it actually ties in with what James your your last comment. So I'll just read this like short thing he said. This is immediately one eight nine a the very ending of our reading today. We can't miss this part. It's so great. So Aristophanes jumps in and he says, "The hiccups have stopped all right because it's his turn, uh, but not before I apply the sneeze treatment to them." Makes me wonder whether the orderly sort of love in the body calls for the sounds and itchings that constitute a sneeze because the hiccup stopped immediately when they applied the sneeze treatment. So he's making this joke about <laughs> whether this orderly, whether love, uh, the love that's being described Rick Samaka is, is a sneeze. Is love a sneeze? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's so great. And yeah. I think it ties in with what you were uh, summarizing earlier, James, about maybe like some of the physical analogy doesn't work because a sneeze being a very physical thing. <laughs> and so immediately after Rixamakis's speech, which seems to be take, which is seems to be helping us along, right? Like, cause 
the previous speaker was like very enmeshed in like customs and just describing just specific practices of the Greeks. And it's helpful that Rixamachus suddenly just opens up our scope of thinking to like love being a force in the universe, that a har the harmonizing force in the universe is love. But like, as you, as you mentioned, maybe some of the his uh, arguments don't work and some of his conclusions aren't like quite fitting. And so immediately Aristophanes comes onto the scene is like, so you're saying love is a sneeze. <laughs> and so we're, we're it's that sort of deals a you know a blow to that. And you know, on we go to his dialectic. We're gonna take what we can from uh Eryximachus about, you know, there's more work to do. So I just think that's such a great way to just like, yeah, segue to the uh, the rest of the dialogue. That's great. Yeah, and, and we'll start with Aristophanes' speech the next time where he does, as I mentioned earlier, get into this idea that we were. Originally, humans were originally spheres that were cut in half, and we're always searching the other half or searching for the other half. But maybe the sneeze thing, actually, there is a play on the idea whether love is voluntary or involuntary. This whole idea that love is a god, uh, you know, the god being separate and apart from us and sort of controlling us. You know, are we subject to the good god or the bad god? Um, you know, is what we do voluntary or involuntary? Like a sneeze is involuntary. So maybe that's maybe that's part of the the themes here that we'll be uh, exploring the next time. So, so wow, this has been a great discussion, and I really want to thank a number of new participants this time as well. I think it's it's been so great, and I'm looking forward to the next session, which is really just that whole beautiful section uh, where Socrates relays his discussion with Diotima, I think, is just really extraordinary. And I think we'll we'll enjoy that. And it's a good chunk of the dialogue that we'll cover. And then the session after that, we can maybe reach some conclusions on some of the questions that we brought up today in terms of uh, some of the connections that we've established here and see if there's any conclusions we can draw about what love is in itself. Take away all the conventions, take away all the regulations and laws and uh, all of the metaphors and all of the analogies and is love in itself, is is it definable? Um, so I think that'll be an interesting question when we get to the end. So I want to thank everybody for participating today. It's been so great. And uh, I'll end the recording now, but uh, invite anybody who wants to stay online for a casual half hour unrecorded discussion, uh, more than welcome to do so. And then anybody else who would like to join us in two weeks for the second part of Plato's Symposium, I look forward to seeing you here. So uh, thanks again, and we look forward to seeing you in two weeks.